This morning, we're going to be in Ephesians. I hope you're already there in your Bibles, as Dallas just read for us. But I want to start with a story that I think illustrates uh, a point that we're going to explore this morning from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, this idea of unity and what it means to be united, what it means to be God's people and to be living and dwelling in unity. The story is actually of Josephus. He was a, a first century historian. That's what he's known for. Um, his uh, writings are helpful for us establishing Christianity's effect in the early days on people outside of the movement. So his writings are helpful in that regard. But Josephus did not start his life as a first century historian. He just started his life as a first century guy. And uh, he was actually a priest. Uh, he was a Jewish priest. He lived in Jerusalem. He had um, a large estate, a family, a house. He had a lot of interest there in the city, and he was well-respected. He had a lot going on for him, but unfortunately, he was uh, alive and living in Jerusalem uh, during uh, Titus's, uh, when, when he came in with the Roman army and overthrew all of Israel. And uh, if you remember, it's, it's in AD, about AD 60 that, that Titus comes in, or AD 70 that he comes in, and he, he destroys the temple um, to the state that it's actually in now. Um, but Josephus was there during that time, and Josephus actually early on in the war was sent up to Galilee in the north to, um, to man a city there where he was overthrown because the Roman army's huge, and he was captured, and then he was brought to Jerusalem, and he was used as an emissary to the, uh, to the Jewish people who, who were now being besieged in Jerusalem. So Rome sets up siege works around the city, and Josephus gets the uh, the honor, I guess, quote-unquote honor, of being able to go to and from to his brothers to kind of plead with them to say, listen, just, just let the Romans in. Like, they're, they're going to get in. If you, just, if you let them in, then things will go well for you. They, they probably won't destroy the city. They won't take us all captive. No one's going to die. Let's just do this. Look what happened to me. Like, I'm pleading with you. And there's, there's a particular entry in, in his, one of his journals where he says this, and, uh, and I think it highlights this idea of, of um, communal thinking. So hear this with me. It says, I know that I have, this is, this is uh, Josephus, what he would have said to the Jews inside Jerusalem. I know that I have a mother, a wife, a noble family, and an ancient and illustrious house involved in these perils. So he's got a lot at stake in this city. So it might, it might appear that he's appealing to them for the sake of his, his goods, his things. But he says, and maybe you think that this is on, on their account that my advice is offered. He says, he says slay them. Take my blood as the price of your own salvation. Here's the kicker. I am too prepared to die if my death will lead to you learning wisdom. Josephus' uh, statement there is a, it's a, a true, he's a true collectivist in his thinking about his people, his kinsmen. While he was willing to die, he was willing to die if that's what it would take for the Jewish rebels, the Jewish people inside Jerusalem to, to gain wisdom, to surrender to Rome. He was ready to sacrifice his life for the welfare of his people. But this is not foreign to us. We don't have to look outside of Scripture to find the sentiment. In fact, Paul says it in, in, in uh, Romans 9, chapter 3, he says this. I mean, Romans 9, verse 3, he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. There Paul talking about his Jewish brothers who have not been saved in Christ. So this uh, sentiment is not, uh, it's not new to us. It is, uh, it's, very, it's very real. And, and Paul actually has the same sentiment, this idea that, that my needs as the individual do not override our needs as the group. 
And I think largely that this is a sentiment that has been eroded from American culture over the years, where we all think of ourselves primarily as individuals. Even within our own family units, we think of ourselves as individuals, and we constantly struggle all the time to get outside of ourselves and our own needs to prioritize the needs of others, even within our own family, much less within our community, much less within our church, our church family, right? And so this is the sentiment that I think Paul is drawing us into here in chapter 4 as, uh, as, as we begin to talk about unity. So let's, let's look at the text this morning. Before we get going, I do want to give you kind of a roadmap so you can track with me. Sometimes my thoughts aren't the clearest, so I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't put it over on you to, to try and to, to lose track of what I'm saying. So let me give you a little roadmap. We're going to look at this, uh, this passage in about four, in four sections. Uh, the first section, one through three, we're going to hear Paul talk about walking in a manner worthy of calling, and then he's going to connect that to unity so that the main thing we're doing as Christians, walking in a manner worthy of what Christ has done for us, he's going to connect that to the way that we operate as a group in unity. Okay? And then he's gonna, we're going to spend the next uh, ten verses um, looking through the what is unity and why unity is important. So in four through six, we're going to look at uh, we're, we need to be one body. We need to have unity in this one body because God himself is one. Okay, and then in verses uh, 7 through 10, we're going to look at uh, that we need to be one body because of what Christ has won for us. So we need to have unity in one body because of what Christ has won for us. And then in the final verses, 11 through 16, we're going to look at this point that, that we need to be, have unity in one body as we strive for one another. Okay, so that's kind of the breakdown of how we're going to, we're going to tackle this text this morning. So if you will... Um, let's, let's, uh, let's read verses 1 through 3 together, and we'll kind of set the context of what's going on here. Paul says in, verses one, one, uh, in verse 1, he says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Let's actually back up and say, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. Let's just take a second and take in what Paul is reminding us of. His setting as he is writing this letter is that Paul is a prisoner that he is being held captive, that this Ephesians is one of his prison epistles, and uh, it, it's one of the ones that he would have written while being chained to a Roman guard. So Paul, as he's, as he's setting this context for us, he's just a quick reminder, guys, I'm going to say some difficult things to you. I'm going to remind you of some very important things, and I want to remind you that I am not saying this from ignorance. I have counted the cost, is what Paul is telling them. That Paul has had a radical transformation that he has put Christ in all and above all. And Christ is the center of everything for Paul. So that these circumstances of being chained to a Roman guard, they're not upsetting to Paul. Why? Because circumstances don't dictate for Paul if things are going poorly or if things are going well. They simply are what they are. And Paul is going to leverage whatever that is, whether it's difficult or easy, whether it's trying, whether it's wonderful. He's going to leverage it for God's glory in his life. He is going to leverage it for God's kingdom. So he's going to use this, his being a prisoner for the Lord, to God's glory. And notice how he, how he phrases that. He is a prisoner of, in fact, Rome, right? He's a Roman prisoner, but he phrases it a prisoner of the Lord. Because the Lord is the one who has him where he is, right? And that's true of all of us, too. The Lord has us 
where he wants us. And he wants us to apply whatever that situation is for the glory of God, whether that's work or home or children, whatever it is, the Lord has you there. And so it's important that, that Paul's including his context because our context is important too. So Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, and here's the kicker right here, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So what's Paul talking about here? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. I think we understand a, a, a worthy, what a worthy manner is. So let's talk about the calling. What, what is the calling that Paul is talking about? He's talking about the gospel. Right? If you have seen the gospel and believed it, if you have seen Christ resurrected for and died for your sins and resurrected on your behalf, and you have believed the gospel, you have seen Jesus, you have turned away from sin and guilt, done the 180 and face towards Christ and righteousness and newness of life, that is the calling of the gospel, that you have been called out of death into new life. So Paul is saying simply, be what Christ has made you, right? Because what happens to us when, when, we, when we repent and we believe and we trust in Christ? What, what is the exchange that takes place there? Well, well, the old man dies away. The old man or the woman is, is dead. They're, they're in the grave and with Christ, we are raised to newness of life. Paul calls us a new creation, that we are, we are totally new, that we are given a new heart, that the heart of stone is removed and a heart of flesh is put in its place. So you are new. You are a new person. If indeed you are in Christ, you are made new. And you have been given, though you did not deserve it or earn it, the righteousness of Jesus. The righteousness that you have, if you're in Christ before God, is the same as Jesus's. And that is the unfathomable portion of the gospel. But it's true. And if you are in Christ, that is your identity. And so Paul is simply calling us to be what you are. He's saying walk in a manner worthy of what has already been declared to be true of you. It's like you're in a class and you walk in and the professor says, listen, you've all got A's. I just want you to enjoy the content. You've all got an A. Just sit and just enjoy what we're studying. That, that is the gospel for us in a classroom setting. So we need to understand this profound nature of the salvation that Jesus offers and that it leads to, when that happens, this newness and, and us realizing this, this newness that we have, it, it leads to a realignment of our priorities, doesn't it? Or at least it should. As we grow in Christ, it realigns everything that we are, everything that we do, everything that we think. It realigns the way we go to the gas station, the way we go to the grocery store, the way we sit at the dinner table, the way we interact with our neighbors. It changes everything. And there's really two ways that we can divide this, this realignment of our priorities and our beliefs and our actions that happens in the gospel. The first one is individually. So we are individually changed to be something completely new. When I became a believer, my life went from hating God to having one to have nothing to do with his law, nothing to do with his people, nothing to do with the gospel, to turning and only wanting to do those things. So there was an immediate amount of sanctification for me. I stopped doing a lot of things and started doing a lot of other things. And maybe you have a similar testimony. Maybe you don't. But the reality is, is that there was a, there's a radical change in your heart and in your understanding, and it happens within you. And so you begin to change the things you do and think and say and believe on an individual basis, on your own. But the other thing that happens and must happen for us as believers is that there's something that changes corporately, socially, about what we do. And that's where Paul is with us this morning, that our 
our social interactions are realigned and we begin to meet together as believers. God doesn't save us into an individual salvation that's just for us. It's just for us to, to walk with on our own, out in the world, figure it out by yourself. No, God saves us into a community. Christ's death saves us into a church, into a body. And that's the, the major way that Paul's going to talk about this morning. And so as we look at verses uh, 2 and 3, we, what we see is Paul says this, "...with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit." In the bond of peace. Zoom in on that word for me, with me for a second. Unity of the spirit. This major social change that takes place after, as a part of the gospel transformation, that it creates unity. So Paul is connecting this, walking in a manner where this new identity that you have in Jesus cannot be separated from this unity that you must experience with your fellow believers. The major social change that the gospel transformation creates is unity with fellow believers. And, and this link that, that Paul creates is important. And, and he even says this. It's not just something that's passive, but he uses the word in verse 3. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That is something that Jesus, that the Holy Spirit creates in you as believers as we walk with the Lord, is an eagerness to be in unity, in unity to be in fellowship with one another. Now, before we go any further, we're going we're gonna to start breaking it down at verse 4. I want to talk about what unity is really quickly. I don't, I don't want there to be any misconceptions about what, what we're talking about when I use the word unity. So there's two things I'm not talking about, and I've used kind of a play on words here that may not make sense at first. But So it, God is not talking about, and when he says unity, Paul is not talking about uniformity. Now, he's not talking about that we should all be exactly the same, that we should all dress the same. We, we shouldn't all wear uniforms, which as I say that right now, I'm realizing is a case against the poor theology of Jehovah's Witnesses. So just take, that's your application point for this, is that Jehovah's Witnesses wear uniforms, which is not a part of scripture. So anyways, the, uh, the unity is not uniformity, right? We don't all have to be the same. We don't, we don't, we're not asked to dress the same, eat the same foods. We're not asked to all live in the same location, and all asked to, to always speak the same language in the, the universal, the, the, the global church. We're not, we're not asked to be all the same in that way. We're not asked to all be, to have uh, the same skin color. Like we can't, we can't all, we don't all have to be from the same ethnic group. Like we are, we are a di- diverse people. It's not a uniformed people. So we're not talking about uniformity. And we're also not talking about just being unified. And what I mean by that is like the way that like any acronym group is unified, like the like PETA or the or FFA or AARP or your HOA, I don't, any, any acronym that you can think of, like the people that, that come together because there's one issue of concern for them and then what they do outside of, of, their, of their participation in this group doesn't really matter. Like what, what else they believe doesn't matter as long as they have this thing in common. That's also not unity. What unity is is this all-encompassing idea of being bound together and bound up in belief and action and lifestyle. And there's this, this beautiful picture that it's not about me, but it's about we. And the thing that unites us is not what makes us similar here in the physical world, but what makes us similar here in the spiritual world. 
that we have all surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. That Jesus is our king and it is our utmost desire to worship and obey and follow and glorify him. That is unity. That is the foundation for what this unity that Paul is talking about is. So now we need to ask the question, so we said, what is unity? So Paul is going to explain to us why unity. Why is unity important? What does it accomplish? What is the big deal with this whole church, corporate body, corporate mindset thing that Paul is getting at here? Let's dive in here. So we're going to look at verses 4 through 6. And uh, we're, and, then, and we'll, we'll discuss. So this this first point I've called that we must be you, we must have unity in one body because God is one. So let's read verses four through six together. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's a oneness, right? That's the main word in those, in those verses is one, right? And, and what Paul is getting at here is that our oneness, that what God has done by creating the church and saving us into a community and not just as individuals, is he's created a body of people that as we as individuals image the creator as his image bearers, we as a community would be his image bearers. What do I mean? What I mean by that is think about the nature of God. Who is God? God is at his core. He's triune, right? Now, we don't have the time to go through the whole theology of the Trinity, but God is Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons. He himself is community and unity and perfect harmony. There is no dissension among the ranks of the Godhead. There is only submission and love and care. All things that as Christ saves us into a community, we are meant to image back to him, to ourselves, and here's the kicker, to the world. So the Lord has set us up as the church, as a people. as as This is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, a blessing to the nations. That we would, um, we would bless all the nations. We'd be a city on a hill, a light to the nations. That our unity would be something supernatural that can't be accomplished in any of those three-letter acronym groups that, that I already listed. That what we're doing here would be so unique and so special that there would be no conclusion other than God is doing something among these people. Now, if that strikes you as odd, it's probably because we don't always do a great job of that. And I think a part of that is that mentality that we talked about with, with Josephus and Paul is that we have lost that collectivist mindset and we still approach the body of Christ as individuals. And we don't approach this, this whole thing that we do that we call church, that the scriptures call church, the body, as a family, but we approach it as individuals. And that's how this, this gets lost. But what God is telling us is that... that our unity as the body is meant to image him, the good and gracious God of the universe, to the world as a light. That what we've got going on here would make people ask questions about, what have they got going on in there? I want to be a part of that. Now, the application here is that this is not something that just happens on its own. It's something we have to strive for. It's like Paul has already said, you must be eager to maintain the unity. So a little bit of application here. How do, how do we do that? How do, how do we begin that process? 
Well, Paul's going to talk about that later, and we're going to get to it. But, but we, we, uh, we, we become a part of that process by correcting sin in one another, in ourselves, by parenting one another's children, by squashing things like gossip, by mourning with those who mourn, by celebrating with those who celebrate, by caring, by praying, by sometimes forcibly inserting ourselves into people's lives so that we can care for them and love them. And the reverse of that is true. Letting people in to your life so that they can care and love for you. God is one, and so therefore we are called to be one. There is, there's no option, other option here. There, there's, no, there's no secondary plan for Christ's kingdom on earth that we should just you know, handle this out as individuals. This, the plan is the church. We are the plan. And so we have to fight to make this one body, one unified body, because it is a reflection of the image of God. Second point here, in verses 7 through 10, is that we must have unity in the body because of what Christ has won for us, right? So we can have unity in the body because of what Christ has won for us. That's a little bit cryptic, but I'm, I'm going to explain it. I'm just trying to make some flow here in my points, so just, just bear with me. So verses 7 through 10, let's read together. It says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And therefore it says, and this is Paul quoting Psalm 68, verse 18 from the Septuagint. He says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So this is Paul pulling out a psalm as prophetic and applying it to Christ. And he's saying, uh, he's saying something, something very profound here, and I want to help us unlock this. So I, had, I, just, I studied this portion of the text, probably a disproportionate amount this week, uh, just to, to get my mind around it because I thought the imagery was so helpful. So what Paul is getting at here is that in uh, ancient kings, but in Paul's context, the Romans, this is from... From way back when, when David's writing to when Paul's writing, this, is, this has been true. When a conquering king, when, when a king who was going to, to, to conquest another land would go in and he would have a great victory in a foreign land and maybe he would take over a capital or he would take over a whole area, the first thing he would do, consolidate power, he removes the whole royal family, takes them captive, he takes all of their, their best stuff, right? all of their gold, all of their, the coolest plants, wh- whatever it is that he thinks is, is this general thinks is good, he's going to gobble it all up, and he's going to set up a power structure, and then he's going to head back to the, to the home city. So in the case of Paul, like Roman general like Titus, when he, when he comes in and takes over Jerusalem, he goes back to Rome, and what happens is there's a parade. All right, and he leads this long train of him at the front, very victorious in the chariot, and, and, and behind him are, is all the royal families taken captive and all the cool things, all the statues, all the plants, all the animals, all of the, the good food, all of the gold, the silver, everything just, is just flowing into the city behind him, and he's bringing all of, these, all of these goods, all of these gifts, and all of these captives back home to the home. This conquering king has plundered this foreign nation, and he's brought all of these goods back to his king as an offering and his people as an offering and as a gift. All right? And this is the exact image that Paul is trying to draw out for us here. That this is what Christ has done for us. Because what has Christ done? But on the cross, 
And in the resurrection, he has him, a, a conquering general, gone into hell. And he has defeated and plundered Satan and brought back with him the gift that was there. These wonderful gifts and this gift being eternal life for his people. Christ has gone in and plundered Satan and brought back this train of gifts that, that, are, that are eternal life back to his people, back to, the, back to the king, the father, and he offers them up to those who would follow him as gifts. And so Paul is saying when he says he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. This is the image that Paul is trying to conjure, that this gift of eternal life is, is, what, is what Jesus has gone and he has brought back for us, that we can partake, that he is our conquering general. It's a really cool image of Jesus. I loved it. But, but one thing that struck me about this is that, and, and, and getting back to our, our point of unity here, is that Jesus does not share credit for doing this with anyone. Jesus didn't have any other generals or anybody else with him. He didn't take any other troops. It was just Jesus on a solo mission, conquering this foreign army, and then bringing back all the goods himself. He doesn't share, he doesn't share this with anyone else. He alone did this. As it says in, in Philippians 2, that, there, that, the name above, that the name of Jesus would be above every name, and that, that his name, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he alone is the, is the solo artist who has orchestrated this symphony that is the gift of eternal life. That Christ's death creates the church so that his people can be united by this singularity of his victory. That he alone is God. And so our unity, that we, we, must, we must be unified because we have to be unified around this one truth. That Jesus alone is the author of salvation. There is no one else. There are no other gods. There are no other ways. There are no other means or methods for, which, uh, for us to attain salvation. There is nothing that we can do apart from Christ to be saved. And so in that truth, when we hold on to that truth that Jesus is God and that he has won salvation for his people and that he alone holds the keys to death and hell, that unites us. That is the truth. That is the bedrock of what we do here as God's people. And if that is not the truth that we are founded on, then, then, then there, there's, there's nothing here that we are doing that is helpful for anybody. Because that is the one truth that we all must have to be a part of this body. Right? That is the, the defining thing for us. And so Christ's death creates the church around that singularity. That singularity of Jesus being the only way that we can be saved. So let's continue in verses 9 and 10. It just says, Paul says in, in verses 9, In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. Paul is simply highlighting that, that Psalm 68, 18 is prophetic. He's saying, why would it say he ascended if he hadn't descended? So it's clearly referring to Christ. So Paul just pulling out the, the prophetic nature of, of David's psalm in, in Psalm 68. And then he says in verse 10, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And this is a singular he, not they, Jesus, the one. Jesus has died to create the church, he himself alone. He is, he is one, and he is the one thing that, our, that our, our unity is founded on, that our faith is founded on, him, Jesus, alone. 
If we continue, we'll look at verses 11 through 16 now. It's kind of one big chunk. We'll, we'll split it in the middle about verse 15. But we're going to look at these final verses. We're going to look at uh, under, the, under the idea that we, are, we have unity in, in the one body. We have unity in the body by striving for one another. And so this is Paul helping us to apply these truths that we've seen so far in the text. So let's read um, through verse 14. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about on every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What Paul is getting at here is he lists these, he lists these offices of the church and the responsibility that they have to equip the saints for the work of ministry, that, that our goal as the body is to pour into one another, to disciple one another, because there's this, uh, you, you can't disconnect the maturity of the body from the responsibility that we have to one another, that the more mature have to the less mature, to the older have to the younger, that the grandparents have to the parents have to the children. The body and the church, we, we exist for a purpose, we are we are an active entity. It's not, we, we don't just gather here passively. It, I mean, it's, it's passive sort of in this moment as we are gathered together. But it's not that you're receiving something special from me, but we collectively are receiving something from God's word. But this is an active thing that we do day in and day out. It's meant to be, we're meant to be filled with activity. We, and this, this, this is kind of the, the crux of what's going on here, is that we, the body, we, the people, are the means So we are the means by which God has ordained to sharpen one another into the image of Christ. We are the means. So look around this room. These people with you, family, people you've just met, people you've known for years, we are the means that God has ordained that we should be how we should be sharpened into the image of Christ. We have a responsibility to one another. We have a responsibility to one another to fight alongside and to fight for one another. And our unity is the basis of that. And so this is what Paul has launched into this thing about unity, and now he's talking about growing up in the faith. Well, unity is the, is the basis by which we come together as a unified body to support one another. How can we fight for someone in the faith? How can we care for someone? How can we battle for someone spiritually that they might be mature, that they might be raised up, that they might be um, made into the image of Jesus? How can we do that for someone and with someone if we're not united to them, if we're not bonded to them, if we're not bound to those people? We, we cannot know them. We cannot love them. We cannot care for them. If there's no covenant, if there's no commitment, just like in a marriage, The reason that the idea of marriage works is because there's a mutual commitment that we have made to one another, and that is how we spur one another on to look more and more like Jesus, to be better and better versions of Christ. Think of growing up. I I didn't grow up um, a believer. I became a believer in my late teens. But as a kid, my mom, whenever me and my brother would fight, would always 
tell us, especially when the fights were, were very emotional, she would say, the best gift that I ever gave the two of you were each other. All right. And I was like, that's, that's dumb. I don't like this guy. Get him out of here, you know. As I, as I matured and aged, I've, I've realized uh, how much of a gift that is, and I've seen that in my wife's relationship with her sisters, and we've tried to instill that in, in our children, especially our boys now as they relate to one another, that they would understand one another as a gift to one another, that we have given them, that when all else fails, you have, you have this, you have one another, and you're related by blood, right? So you've got this bond, you've grown up together, you know each other, you got, you got to work it out because you two are the, are the best gift that we ever gave each other. In this room, these people, this church, this is the, the greatest gift apart from eternal life that Jesus has given us. One another. Because we are the means by which we will make it to eternity. Right? We are the means by which God is going to make us look like Christ. We are the greatest gift to one another that God has given us apart from eternal life. And so we have a responsibility to care, to invest, to raise one another up, to find where people are lacking, whether it's spiritual, financial, emotional, and to fill them up, to be seeking in others to cause them to be worshipers of God, not to come into this place seeking to be filled by someone else. Our goal can't be that we should come in and receive, but that we could go in and give what we have. That's a command of Christ, right? That, that, that we would give what we have so that we could receive even more. So that's what we are imaging to one another as we invest and care and, and, and surround one another with, with the, the beauty of the body of Christ. So then we have to ask the question, well, how do we do this? Well, well Paul says it in a phrase. This is, let's read 15 and 16 together. It's rather speaking the truth in love. Let's just stop right there. That's it. Rather speaking the truth in love. So how, how do we strive for one another? Right there, verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Folks, we have to wash one another in these scriptures. Right? This is, this is our, primary, our primary means to care for one another is to speak the truth in love based on the unity that we have formed by investing and bonding ourselves to one another. And when we do this, when we, when we pour ourselves out for one another and when we, when we speak the truth in love and we don't... We don't Uh, just say nice things or pleasant things to one another, but we speak truth and we speak love to one another, we speak truth lovingly to one another, then we can partake in this this beautiful crescendo of what Paul has has listed for us. And I just want to read um, uh, 14 through 16 all in once because you just just get the thrust of of where Paul is going with this. It's this beautiful passage. You almost get the idea that Paul couldn't stop. Like it was hard for him to like kind of end this sentence. He says, so that you, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up 
in love. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of what we have been called to do and to be. It's a beautiful picture of what, of what we want in our hearts. But it's something that I, that I fear that we have, we have at times missed. And as I was reflecting on that this week and previous weeks, there's at least ten of you in here that have heard me verbally process this idea over the past several weeks as I've been studying uh, this passage, that the, uh, our poor understanding of, of family because of our culture's poor understanding of family has affected the way we understand spiritual family. That because we come from broken families, we, are, um, we, are, we come from families of, of divorce and, and death and, and waywardness, um, we, we come from, from broken relationships, we come from um, abuse. Because we come from these things, we, we import that into our experience as God's people with one another. And it can feel dangerous for us to connect with one another. It can feel dangerous for us to invest in other people because it doesn't come naturally. Because what has happened to us in our lives as individuals has scarred us. Because we've put up walls, and what we've done is, is, is now we, we bring those walls into the church, and we have just enough to let the gospel in, but not enough to let the family of God in. I'm here to encourage you, church, this morning that... Uh, well, the bad news is, is that's not sustainable, that you cannot be a uh, vibrant, growing member of the body of Christ and not be willing to open yourself up to other people and to let people into your life. So we have to dispel all of these things that are untrue about the family of God that we've learned from our broken relationships outside of this place. And I'm not saying that we'll never be hurt, because we will be. It does happen. People say hurtful things. But we are being commanded to be unified, and that requires sacrifice. That requires risk. And that's what Paul is asking us to do. And that when we do that, when we let people in, and we, when we surround one another with the love of Christ, it's a beautiful thing that we see the church as it was meant to be, that we can surround one another with the way we were meant to surround one another. Paul and Jesus and, and many writers in the New Testament, all the imagery that we've been studying in Joshua, it frames God's people as a family, as a unit. And that should be our driving point, that we would be a family. And that comes with certain responsibilities. And that's what Paul is driving home for us today. When he says in verse 16, from, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That is a supernatural connection. That is a supernatural unity that only comes from Christ working in our lives individually and us investing ourselves in one another corporately. It's something that the world cannot repeat if we are doing it correctly, if we are submitting ourselves to Jesus. This is not repeatable. You can't find this at at the Civitan Club. Like, it's not, it's not going to happen. Because this is supernatural. This is beyond the physical plane. This is, this is a spiritual family. And this family are the people that you're going to worship with eternally. And that's what Christ is getting at. That's what Paul is getting at. Is that even if we have broken relationships with our, with our family outside of this place, this family 
may even right now be replacing it, but absolutely will replace those broken relationships in the kingdom to come when Christ wipes away all the tears. Folks, I'm supremely excited to be a part of this body of believers because we love one another and we care for one another. And we do fall short. We all do. We do fall short. But Christ is there with his grace. And so I don't mean this as an indictment of anybody. I pray that you hear this as an encouragement for what we can be when we take that next step of faith to invest and care for one another. So our our application today is simple. Look to the left and, and look to the right and find someone that you do not know well and get to know them well. Because they, if they are in Christ, if they are a member of this body, they are your brother and your sister in Christ and you will worship with them in heaven eternally. And that is to be celebrated. So let's partner with one another. Let's reach out. Let's find one another. Find where, find where one another are lacking and fill one another up. Knitting one another together as the whole body, joined together by every joint with which it is equipped, working properly. Let's pray together.